Well, great to see you, everybody. Uh, happy Father's Day to all the uh, fathers and father figures in the room, and a happy Lord's Day to uh, everybody. Um, many of you will know that I have actually become a father for uh, the third time just recently. Um, thank you. Uh, our uh, little boy, Arlo John Webster, was born on uh, the, uh, the 1st of April. Uh, lovely little lad uh, he is as well. Um, and we have noticed something of a bit of a difference in the way that people react when you tell them you've had your uh, third child as opposed to when you tell them you've had your first or your second child. Uh, there's, there's a discernible note of amusement in people's uh, voice when they say congratulations to you. And I think the reason for this was summed up quite neatly by my friend Darren in his card of congratulations to us, uh, which said this, congratulations, you've made the ultimate mistake you've got yourself outnumbered by your kids. Okay? And you might actually feel particularly sorry for my wife, Becky, because she is now outnumbered four to one, uh, boys to girls in the house. But uh, any of you that know that my, my rather formidable wife will know that we probably need a couple more boys just to make it a fair fight. Um, now, all of this is said in jest, of course, but it did get me thinking, what would I say to little Arlo in, say, five years' time if he were to come to me and say, Daddy, why did you decide to have me? You know, particularly given that there was a pandemic at the time and the economic uncertainty ahead, I'm assuming he'd be a fairly bright five-year-old. Um, you know, why did you decide to have another baby? And speaking strictly for me, because it's Father's Day, I actually think that would be quite an easy question to answer. I'd just be able to say to him, Arlo, all you need to know about, you just need to know about what our life was like at the point we decided to have you. See, at that particular point, Daddy was already a daddy. He was already a father to your brothers, Jack and Isaac. And he loved that experience so much of loving them and them loving him that he just wanted to experience it all the more. So enjoyed being part of our family that he wanted a bigger family. And you know what? I think that that would be a rather nice thing for Arlo to hear. But you know what else? It's actually a lovely thing for you to hear and for me to hear because I think that is pretty much the same answer that the Lord would give us if we were to go to him and say to him, God, why did you create human beings? Why did you create us? Why did you create me? After all, if we look at what was happening before God created human beings, we'll see it's a very similar situation. Jesus said this in John chapter 17 when praying to the Father, Father, you have loved me before the creation of the world. So do you see before uh, the eternal Son of God took on flesh to become Jesus Christ, he was the Son of God. He was in relationship with the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit and he was in that relationship long before uh, creation. So before human beings were even created, the father had a son whom he loved with perfect love. And he so enjoyed loving the son, the son loving him back, that he wanted to create us, that we might have fellowship with him and he might be able to share that love with us. He so enjoyed his family that he wanted a bigger family. That's why it says in Romans 5.5, 5, when somebody becomes a child of God, God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. You notice that language? It's from the overflow, from the Father to the Son. That is then overflows to us as his creation. And I get a kick out of that. The fact that it's the same love that the Father feels for Jesus is the love he feels for us. And just recently, I've been rereading one of the best books I think I've 
ever read, best Christian books, uh, The Good God by Mike Reeves, enjoying the Father, Son, and Spirit. And he talks about this um, theology of the Trinity, this incredibly rarefied air. It's just wonderful stuff. And in there, he points out that this image of the Father's love being poured out to the Son and then overflowing uh, to us has led many theologians over the years to picture the Father's love as a fountain. You picture this fountain here. If you were there looking at that fountain, you wouldn't be thinking to yourself, you wouldn't be worrying that that water is going to run out, would you? You know that it's a constant, inexhaustible supply of water pouring out. And I want to imagine when you see that fountain that the water being poured out is the Father's love being poured out by the Holy Spirit. And that centerpiece of the fountain in the middle is the eternal Son of God. So the Father's love is being poured out through the Holy Spirit to the Son of God. But what happens? There's an overflow. And that overflow is creation. And that's where we come in. The 17th century uh, theologian, Puritan theologian, John Owen, uh, writing about the Father's love using this very image of a fountain, said this, If the love of a father will not make a child delight in him, what will? Exercise your thoughts upon this very thing, the eternal, free, and fruitful love of the Father, and see if your hearts be not stirred to delight in him. Sit down a little at the fountain, and you will quickly have a further discovery of the sweetness of the streams. And that's what I wanted us to do for this message today. I want us to come and sit down at the fountain a little. If you picture that fountain we just looked at on the screen there, you want, I want you to picture actually um, getting your shoes and socks off, you know, rolling your trousers up or just getting in. It's a hot day, let's imagine. And actually wading into those waters. So we're in the overflow of the fountain. But imagine it as the overflow of the Father's love, that we might feel the sweetness of its streams. And I'm going to look at three aspects of the Father's love today. And as we look at each one, I want you to imagine that each of these points and the scriptures that we look at and the points made along the way is like a fresh surge, a fresh wave of the Father's love going over you. Now, it might be that on Father's Day, this is a difficult day for you. You know, there are for many reasons people who struggle on Father's Day. Well, I hope as we think about your heavenly Father's love for you, that you will actually find as we listen today, as we consider these things, that these will be healing waters of the Father's love. And for the rest of us, I hope as we go out today that we will just know that we've been in the restorative waters, streams of the Father's love poured out to the Son and overflowing to us through the Holy Spirit. So if you're up for that, let's start looking at these surges, at these waves. The first wave then. The Father's love is an extravagant love. You know, the scriptures are replete with images that show us that the Father's love for us is far more than just tolerating us or putting up with us uh, or even just a, a, a small affection for us. No, the Father's love for us is an extravagant love. It goes beyond the norm. It's over the top, if you like. You know, no better is this summed up than in this famous story of the prodigal son, the story told by Jesus of this uh, son who squanders his inheritance, goes and spends it on wine, women and song, and then ends up destitute and in disgrace and decides he's going to come back to the father to beg for forgiveness. And what do we see when the son comes back to the father? What do we see the father do? Who's a picture of Father God in this particular story. Does he rebuke the son? Does he reject the son? Does he refuse his love to the son? No, he runs to the son. He's watching from far off, and when he comes back, he doesn't even have a chance to repent. He runs out towards him, 
and he falls upon him and showers him with kisses. That is a picture of the Father's extravagant love for us. You know, and yet many times we find it very difficult to accept that our Father feels that way about us. And one of the main reasons for that can be, actually, that we look at our own earthly fathers and we kind of look at them as sort of like the the original, the prototype, the, the blueprint of what a father is. And what we do is we, we look at the characteristics of them and we read those characteristics into our heavenly father. And that can be difficult enough, even if you've got a good dad. You know, I, I've got a, a good earthly father. I like to think I'm a good earthly father. But I, I feel the weight of that responsibility when I know that the father God has shared his title with me. And I know that it's going to be perfectly natural for my boys growing up to look at me and read the characteristics I have onto the father. And I feel that responsibility and it motivates me to try and be the best dad I can be. I don't want them looking at their heavenly father and thinking he's so petty as to get upset over little things like a football team losing, for example. But as much as the temptation is and as natural as it is for us to read the characteristics of our earthly father into our heavenly father, we've got to resist that as much as possible, especially if you've had a very difficult relationship with your father, or maybe even worse than that, or maybe your relationship with your father is non-existent. What we need to do is we actually need to look to the scriptures and see God's, the description of our heavenly father there and take that at face value and see that actually the father is the original. Our heavenly father is the original, the prototype. He's the blueprint. So we need to look to the scriptures and let him speak for himself and see how much he loves us. One such scripture is Zephaniah 3.17. It's one of my favorite scriptures. I haven't thought about it for a very long time, but it came to me when I was preparing for this. In the book of Zephaniah, it's one of those kind of scary Old Testament books, actually, where the prophet Zephaniah is talking about how angry God is with the sins of the people. And there were serious sins, and that's why he was angry. But then he prophesies the time when God will feel very differently and deal with his people very differently. And to cut a long story short, my study of this, I'm absolutely convinced that that prophecy is fulfilled, that that time has come, that the um, way God is speaking here, the people he's speaking about, is us, his new covenant believers. All to say, when I read this scripture, I want you to see this is how your heavenly father loves you and feels about you. It says this, the Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. Isn't that a lovely verse? And do you know what? I was wandering around the house and I was thinking about this verse the other week. And I thought, do you know what? I haven't, over the years, I've collected so many resources on the Bible and things like that. It's a great joy to me and very annoying to my wife because there's too many books all over the place. But I thought to myself, do you know what? I haven't looked at this verse in my study Bible. If you don't know what a study Bible is, it's about four times the size of a normal Bible because it has the scriptures at the top of the page and then it has the explanation at the bottom. So I I went upstairs to pull out my study Bible and I got it out of the bookcase and I put it down on my desk and I opened it up at Zephaniah 3 and I looked for verse 17. And I kid you not, at the very moment that I looked below that to look and see what the scholars said this verse means, and I really do mean it was at this very moment, this isn't like a preacher's story or overemphasis or anything like that, okay? Not that preachers make up stories, but you know what I mean. At that, ver- <laughs> at, that, at that very moment that I looked, I heard Becky downstairs with our baby Arlo. And do you know what I heard? I heard this. You are my sunshine, my only sunshine. I can't get through it. But you know the rest, presumably. Do you know what she was doing? She was delighting in him. 
she was rejoicing over him with singing. And you know what? I didn't actually read what those scholars said, and I'm not having to go at scholars. I appreciate biblical scholars, let me say that. But I don't think whatever they said could have come close (laughs) to what Becky did in that moment, explaining what this verse means. And I never really thought about how much of a parental verse it is. This is the love that your father feels for you. He delights in you. He rejoices over you with singing. You know, and you might not feel worthy of that love. Do you know what? None of us are, but because of what Jesus did, he, he made us worthy. He gave us the right to become children of God. God doesn't love you because you've impressed him or earned that love in some way. He loves you because he loves you. I'll be honest, I love Arlo. He's like, I think, 10 weeks old now. He hasn't done anything, though. Okay? Hasn't had a good school report yet. Hasn't even been to school. You know, he hasn't done anything to earn our love, but we're crazy about him. We love him. And he doesn't always, you know, keep clean. Sometimes he dirties things. Okay? Do you know what we do? We give him a bath. We chuck away the dirt and we keep the baby. That's what your father does for you. You earn his love. And when you get messy, he cleans you up, but he holds on to you. He loves you. And it's an extravagant love as a father to a child. So let that first wave wash over you. The father's love is extravagant. Secondly, the father's love is a transformational love. Now, this is important to say, actually, because sometimes when you talk about the father's love, People can sort of get the impression what you mean by that is, well, he loves you, it's just a sort of sentimental thing and it doesn't really matter what you do. I remember years ago, there was a kind of debate in young adults, a very live debate, because somebody was going to do something that they knew was wrong. There was no debate over whether it was wrong. They knew that, everybody knew that. But their point was, and they summed it up with this line, look, God loves me and that's all that matters. Okay? So in other words, they were saying they can kind of behave however they want. Of course, that's not true. And this is a necessary corrective here to say that actually God's love is not just some sentimental passive love that just says, I love you, do whatever you want. No, his love actually has standards and he transforms you into those standards. He wants us to obey his commands because his commands are good for us. And if they're good for us and he loves us, then he wants us to actually behave that way. He wants to transform us. Jesus said this in John 14, 23. It says, Jesus replied, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. Unless we think this is just Jesus saying this, these words you hear are not my own. They belong to the father who sent me. So in other words, uh, the Father's love doesn't mean we can do whatever we like. The Father's love actually transforms us that we may be obedient to his will, that we might change and actually become more like him. To reappropriate a quote from the theologian Karl Barth, love and obedience are kind of like thunder and lightning. They're different things, but when you find one, you find the other. And what's good is, when you come to know the Father's love, he actually helps you to obey. He actually transforms you. And he does this in two particular ways. For one thing, he changes your desire so that you actually want to obey his commands. You actually want to transform. You want to become like him. But as well as that, he also gives you the power to change. But firstly, your desire, because this happens overnight, I think. The moment you get a revelation of the Father's love, you want to become like him. You want to change. I remember hearing a story told by the, uh, the late great preacher, uh, David Pawson, just died uh, just the other year. Um, and David Pawson uh, tells this story. It sounds like a kind of apocryphal story, but he told it, so I'd just take it at face value about someone he knew. 
about a headmaster he knew for a reform school. I'm not sure if that's how you say it, but a school for, for lads, like a corrective, a correctional facility. And there was this one particular lad who, who was an orphan and had a very troubled background. And whatever they did, they just couldn't reform his behaviour. You know, they tried discipline, uh, they, they tried rewards and things, but nothing worked. And eventually, the headmaster at this school invited the lad into his office and he sat him down and he said to him, look, we've tried everything. You know, we, we've tried discipline, we've tried punishments, we've tried the stick, if you like. We've tried rewards, we've tried the... But whatever we do, nothing seems to change. You don't seem to want to change. So I'm going to try one last thing. I'm going to adopt you. I'm going to be your father and you're going to be my son. And David Pawson said, if I were to tell you that that boy lived the perfect life from that moment on, I'd be telling you a lie. But if I told you that he wanted to, I'd be telling you the truth. You know, and I really feel the weight of that because the moment you become a Christian, the moment you become a child of God, it changes your desire. You just want to live for him. You just want to live better. You just want to change. But as well as changing your desires so that you might be transformed, God actually gives you the power to change. He actually transforms you himself. Remember the image, we're sat there in the fountain. We're there in the streams of the Father's love through the Holy Spirit. Well, the Holy Spirit, when it becomes a part of your life, the Holy Spirit transforms you. And the Holy Spirit will continue the good work it starts in you. And so you look upon your Father And you want to become more like him, but the Holy Spirit in you is making you more like him. 2 Corinthians 3.18, we all with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory. So you're sitting back, appreciating the fountain, looking at the Lord, wanting to be more like him. And being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And so the key thing to remember here is, if you're struggling with something, if you're locked in some kind of sin, if you, you need to change and you're struggling to be transformed, you're struggling to change, don't just make a list of do's and don'ts and punish yourself when you get things wrong. You know, that can be right in the right spirits and so on. But actually what you need to do is you need to go to the Father and worship and appreciate, and his love will transform you. So the second wave, his love is a transformational love. And the third wave, The Father's love is an eternal love. You know, one of the things that most exercised me when I first became a Christian was having found out that there was an eternity, I very much wanted to know where I was going to be for eternity. I knew that actually at the end of my life, I was going to have to give an account for the life that I'd lived to the Lord. And I knew that I was supposed to be forgiven, but I really wanted to know from the scriptures that actually when that happened, that I would have eternal life, that I would live with the Lord forever. And I started studying the book of Romans, which is a good place to go for that, because the Apostle Paul talks about, using legal language, how we are justified, that is, declared to be righteous. That is, on the final day, the verdict uh, will come in that you are declared to be not guilty. And preachers normally use the image of a kind of law court, right? The high court of heaven, and on that day, the, the gavel comes down and you're declared not guilty, because Jesus took your guilty verdict and the punishment that went along with it, and you get his not guilty verdict. And I liked that. I loved that image because it was legal language. You know, legal language is solid. You can take it to the banks. It's very uh, nice to know that you are eternally secure for that reason. All culminates in Romans 8.1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But the funny thing about that image is, it doesn't make me feel particularly warm about the judge. 
You know, at the end of that, great, I'm glad that I'm forgiven, I'm glad that it's legal, I'm glad that it's binding, and so I know I'm eternally secure, but I don't then want to go and live with the judge forever. But what I hadn't noticed at that particular point is that actually there's another legal proceeding that takes place in Romans 8, and it's adoption. It says in verse 15, the spirit you receive, so when you receive the spirit when you become a Christian, brings about your adoption to sonship. So in other words, if you like, it isn't just that you're in the high court of heaven, like a court of law where God is the judge. There's also a court of adoption where God is the father. If you like, it isn't just that I know my eternity is secure because it's written in law. I know my eternity is secure because it was written on my heavenly father's heart. And he did not adopt you that he might condemn you. And so we know by being children of God, we know because of the father's eternal love for us that we are secure eternally. But not only do we have eternal security, we also have eternal reward. Part of the reason people would adopt people in the first century in Rome to where the apostle Paul is writing that letter is because you wanted to secure an heir for your inheritance that you wanted to pass on. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. So the Apostle Paul is saying, when you are adopted as a child of God, there is a great inheritance for you. And what is that inheritance? That inheritance is glory. That inheritance is to go and live with the Lord forever. That inheritance will be a new heavens and a new earth and a new body one day that will never spoil or fade or be harmed by anything. But ultimately what it means is this. It means an eternal relationship with the Father. That is our greatest reward. And what I want you to bear in mind, if we go back to the picture that we started with at the outset, that ongoing, inexhaustible supply of the Father's love, any love that you've ever felt on earth, is a reflection of that original love of the Father to the Son overflowing to us. And we've only felt a mere shadow of it. But when you go to be with the Lord, when you have your eternal reward and go to be with the Father forever, you will be in the streams of the Father's unadulterated love for the rest of time. So the best you've ever felt, the most loved you've ever felt, is nowhere near how you will feel every second of every day for the rest of eternity because the Father's love is eternal. How deep the Father's love for us, that the Father might pour out his love upon us, that we might sit in the streams, go to the Father and know his extravagant love, his transformational love, that we might know his eternal love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you love us. I thank you that you sent your only son to die for us, that we might be adopted as your children. Lord, I pray for every single person within the sound of my voice that they might receive a a revelation today that you are their father, that you love them with a love that's extravagant, that's transformational, and a love that is eternal. And we ask these things in your mighty name. Amen. I'd love you all to stand, and what I'd love to do is just share a moment uh, together. I would like us to respond. I would like this to apply to everybody. So what I'd like to do, first of all, is give you an opportunity, if you've never responded to the Father's love, to become a Christian, to become a child of God. It might be for the very first time. 
It might be uh, to come back to him, like the prodigal son coming back because things haven't worked out. Whatever it is, if that's you, uh, whether watching with us uh, online or whether you're here, I'd like you just to, in the quiet of your hearts, just to pray along with me as I pray a very short prayer here, if you'd like to respond. Heavenly Father, thank you that you love me. Lord, I pray that you will give me a revelation of your forgiveness because of what Jesus did on the cross and give me a revelation right now of your uh, loving, uh, fatherly love towards me. Come and fill me with your spirit that I might experience your love right now. Forgive me for my sins and come and be my father for eternity. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, there'll be, some, uh, there'll be a, a place you can go online uh, to respond. If you're here, there'll be people who can speak to you in the auditorium afterwards. But for all of us, I want us to respond to the Father's love today. I don't just want this to be a doctrinal thing, just you know, where we look at the Father's love just on the paper. I want that to float out of the Scriptures and into our hearts. So I'd ask all of you, as I'm just going to pray for a few moments, to put out your hands in front of you as though you're receiving the streams, the waters from the fountain of the Father's love. And I want to pray for that love to be poured out upon you. So Heavenly Father, uh, you can do this at home if you're watching on as well. Heavenly Father, I just pray right now through your Holy Spirit that you will just send a surge of your love upon each of us, Lord. Lord, by your Holy Spirit, will you fill us with a revelation of the extravagance, the depth of your love for us, that you rejoice over us with singing. I pray particularly for anyone here whose fathers or parents or uh, father figures were uh, sort of reserved in their love for them. Or maybe uh, there's a relationship that's broken there. Lord, I pray that you will show them as your heavenly Father that you love them with an extravagant love, that you rejoice over them, that you delight over them, that you do not rebuke them, Lord. Lord, we thank you. And Lord, I pray for transformation as well today. Lord, I pray where we viewed your love as a sort of sentimental thing, as a passive thing. Lord, I pray right now that you will, uh, again, give us a surge of that love, that we might feel its power, that it might help us to change, that it might help us to overcome things that we're struggling with, that we might do what we want to do, which is become more like you, our Heavenly Father. And Lord, we pray as well that we might get a true revelation of the eternal nature of your love. For anybody who worries for where their eternal future is going to be, Lord, Lord, we say that again. Your uh, eternity is written in the heart of the Father. And Lord, we pray you'll give us a revelation of that, that we know that you did not adopt us to condemn us, but you adopted us, that you might be our Father forever. Let that surge wash over you if you're here today and you need to hear that. And finally, that eternal reward, Lord. Lord, I pray that we will just glory in the fact that we know you have a place for us, Father, and that we will come to live with you forever and know your love forever, your unadulterated, uh, exuberant love, Lord. So come and fill us with that revelation of your Spirit, of your Son, and of your Father in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let's give them a clap of praise, shall we? Thank you so much for your time today, everybody. We're going to sing to the Father now.